This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great honor and uh, pleasure of uh, interviewing for this podcast uh, a, a legend in gynecologic oncology, uh, Professor Ate van der Zee. Uh, he's the chairman of uh, Board of Directors and Professor of Gynecologic Oncology at University Medical Center, Groningen, Netherlands, a former president of the European Society of Gynecologic Oncology. And also joining us today is uh, Brian Slomowitz, who is also one of the uh, co-authors in this very, very important and landmark study. Uh, Brian Slomowitz is the director of gynecologic oncology at Mount Sinai Medical Center, also professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Florida International University and a member of the board of directors of the GOG Foundation and uterine cancer trial lead for GOG Partners. Um, obviously, the, uh, the topic of this podcast is the um, article radiotherapy versus inguinofemoral lymphadenectomy as treatment for vulvar cancer patients with micrometastases in the sentinel lymph node uh, results from the Growings 2 uh, trials. So uh, welcome to you both, and thank you once again for participating in this uh, podcast. Thank you very much, Pedro, for having me this morning. And, and you know, it's an honor for me to work with such a great colleague from um, the Groningen Group. And then the same goes, of course. So thank you for this uh, very nice um, introduction, uh, Pedro. And I also regard it as an honor to be involved in this podcast. And it's very good to have Brian here as well. He, he is probably more than I am the, the future of gynecological oncology. I'm already a little bit in the past. <laughs> I would say some would argue against that, but definitely uh, we, uh, we're very honored to, to have you both. Uh, so I wanted to start uh, with a little bit of background. Uh, let's start, uh, Ate, with you discussing sort of like the sequence of the landmark uh, studies uh, telling us about the, the Groins 1. I think at the same time, uh, GOG 173 was ongoing. Um, what were the goals of these studies? What were the results, and what set up the stage for this uh, for this study? Yeah, thank you. That's a really nice question to start off with. Well, um, Groin's V1 um, was really um, meant to show that indeed it is safe to not perform a full lymphadenectomy, even a femoral lymphadenectomy, in patients that had a negative uh, sentinel node. Uh, in early stage uh, vulva cancer. Um, in those days when the study was uh, performed, and we're talking about uh, the, the, the end of the 20th uh, century, um, the standard of care, of course, in vulva cancer was to perform a radical local excision, always combined with an elective inguinofemoral lymphadenectomy. And we, we knew, of course, that in a large part of the patients, the the lymphadenectomy would not show any uh, metastasis, but the problem was we did not have any, and we still do not have any non-invasive uh, technique that allows you to, to say, well, you don't have to perform a full lymphadenectomy in these patients. And uh, in those days, um, the, the central node technique uh, also uh, introduced, of course, in the gynecology um, uh, community by uh, Charles Levenbach from, from, from the MD Anderson, um, and, and we also were working on exploring which technique would be the best, but we always did the central node technique and then 
followed by doing a full inguinofemoral lymphoma next to me. And the, the most important most important part of Groin's V1 was that we did do a central node, and when the central node was negative, we did not perform a full lymphoma next to me. And we very carefully looked at the groin recurrence rate after two years, and we did show in a sufficient number of patients, I think it was 273, that after two years, the groin recurrence rate was below 3%, which was, in fact, comparable um, to uh, what was standard of care doing a full lymphoma next to me. And so that was the, the, the most important, uh, uh, important finding, combined, of course, with the fact that we also looked at treatment-associated morbidity, and we also showed that, indeed, after the central node only, you had much less uh, treatment-associated morbidity, such as lymphedema of the legs, in the patients that only had a negative central node. So those were the major findings, and perhaps also an important spin-off of this study um, uh, was, and still is, I think, that um, because normally everybody in those days was saying you need to perform a randomized control trial in order to really prove this. But what we did was we, we knew um, that uh, performing a randomized trial probably would be impossible because of the number of patients in such a rare disease. And therefore, we um, designed this prospective phase two treatment trial with stopping rules and were able to in, a, in a, a high number of patients, but still limited number of patients, we were able really to prove the safety and also the, um, the, the efficacy of this um, policy. Yeah, and, and absolutely a practice-changing uh, uh, trial already. Um, and, and now getting on to the, the current standards, I'd like to turn to Brian. Um, what, is, what, what would you say is the current standards today, uh, 2021, regarding patients with positive sentinel lymph nodes? And if you can just expand as to when is adjuvant radiotherapy indicated? Yeah. You know, the, um, th thanks for that question. And the, the, the first part is easy. The, the second part's a little bit more controversial. But um, first of all, I, I agree with Ate completely about the, uh, his first landmark um, trial, the Groins V1. And, you know, he did mention the, the GOG independently um, did their GOG 173 led by Charles Levenbach, um, which really showed the same thing, the validity of sentinel nodes. Currently, prior to the results of this study, the, the standard of care is for women to undergo, a, a, for women with a four centimeter um, unilocular tumor or less, so four centimeters or less, um, with no clinically palpable or radiographic nodes to undergo a sentinel lymph node procedure. In those patients that were sentinel lymph node negative, um, as discussed, it was acceptable to um, treat them as node negative patients without further treatment. In those that were positive, then up until this study, the treatment was an inguinal femoral uh, lymphadenectomy. And we know the side effects that are associated with it. And then based on those results, to proceed with, with radiotherapy. Um, the second part of your question, when, when should we give radiotherapy? You know, it, it is controversial. I think um, a lot of uh, clinicians in the United States, if there's one positive node, whether unilateral or bilateral, that they go right for radiotherapy, given the high morbidity of a recurrence in that setting with the relatively lower toxicity of radiotherapy. But there are definitely um, other, you know, seasoned clinicians who, who know exactly what they're doing who treat those patients with one node or less with surgery alone and closely follow up. Right. So now let's let's get into this particular study, the Groin's uh, 
to trial. Um, Ate, what was the primary uh, endpoint of the trial? And if you could also talk a little bit to us about uh, some of the secondary objectives as well. Sure, thank you. Um, well, the primary aim was to um, establish the growing recurrence rate after two years um, um, uh, in patients with a metastatic sentinel node, at first, regardless of size, um, 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 after two years and having had radiotherapy to the groin, instead of having a central node procedure, then a lymphadenectomy, and based on the results of a lymphadenectomy, whether on a radiotherapy or not. So that was really the, the primary aim. We wanted to show that it is safe to not perform a lymphadenectomy, but instead give a radiotherapy. And again, the primary endpoint was the groin recurrence rate, because um, that is an, an endpoint that you can really determine after two years, because we know from our previous experiences that growing recurrences always um, occur uh, within the first two years after of the primary treatment. So the, the secondary aim of the study, of course, was to show that um, in, uh, that with respect to growing recurrence rate, there would be no uh, increase with respect to the standard of care. But uh, the secondary aim was to show that the morbidity, the treatment-associated morbidity, uh, was would be lower in those patients who had a central node and then only radiotherapy in comparison to uh, the data for patients who had a full uh, lymphadenectomy and, for example, radiotherapy. Very well. And um, now can you follow that up with a little bit of information uh, pertaining to the study design? Yeah. So the, the study design in principle was very much uh, comparable to um, the design of groin C1. So it was a prospective phase two treatment trial where we had uh, formulated based on uh, the literature data and also our own experiences in groin C1, uh, stopping rules for the, the patients who had a, um, um, a, a metastatic central node and were then treated with radiotherapy. And so um, we have, uh, and we estimated the groin recurrence, recurrence rate for standard of care, approximately, I think, a baseline 6% with a maximum increase to 10%. And based on that, we had formulated our, our stopping rules. And, and who, were the, uh, who were the candidates for this particular study? So candidates for the study were uh, patients um, S4 groin C1, mm -hmm. uh, a primary tumor smaller than 4 centimeter, um, more than 1 millimeter of invasion, um, no suspected nodes on um, uh, imaging or palpation and, uh, in the groins, and then uh, the central node um, uh, uh, needed to, of course, uh, needed to be metastatic, and at, at first that was regardless of size. So also those patients, for example, with only uh, isolated tumor cells in the, met in the central node were regarded as having a metastatic central node. Yeah, and that's very interesting, and I'm, I'm actually going to go into that a little bit uh, later. But Ate, one of the other things also I wanted to highlight, again, uh, the importance, particularly for these rare tumors, the importance of collaboration. And I know that there was a collaboration from the Groningen Group and the GOG. Um, how many hospitals and how many countries participated in the Gro Groins V2 uh, trial? 
Yeah, so uh, I, I expected this, and uh, the number is really uh, very, very high. Um, I think we have, maybe, Brian, do you know it by heart? I think it's over 30 or something like that, and it really was a global effort. So it started off in Europe, um, and many many countries from Europe, many centers from Europe, uh, but uh, it was very, very important that in the end also the DOG uh, decided to uh, to come on board and and Brian, how many centers from the from the U.S. participated? Yeah, we had we had over twenty of our um, twenty of our centers participate um, in the end, and, and it was it was really you know as, as you're alluded to, really a, a nice team effort to get a, um, uh, everyone together. And you know it, we haven't hit home yet, but it's over seventeen hundred patients. Amazing. So this was this this is a feat that's never going to be. Or, um, you know, bypassed again, 1,700 prospective trial in, in women's bulwark. <laughs> it's amazing. That's true. That's always uh, the same. That's always what I tell my, my colleagues. I'm, I'm telling them, well, this is the largest prospective study performed in tuberculosis cancer. And I'm quite sure, but you never, you cannot predict the future, but I'm quite sure that it will not be repeated within the next 10 years, to be honest. Yeah, and it's amazing. And that's why I wanted to, to highlight um, the, the, the collaboration and of course, obviously grateful to all of the centers that participated. Now I want to get into a little bit more of the details regarding, um, some of the methodology and, and, uh, and the surgery. Um, Ate, I was wondering if you could tell us about the Sentinel lymph node biopsy technique, uh, what radio tracers were used or allowed um, and, and also as a follow-up, uh, you know, I don't think I saw that ICG was used and as you know, it's commonly used now. Could this have been a detriment to the findings in the study? Um, so it was imperative uh, to use the combined technique. So, uh, the, the use of a radioactive tracer was, uh, obligatory and, um, um, and, and, uh, uh, I guess most centers probably uh, did use uh, the blue dye. And uh, for example, so with regard to your question, um, of course, nowadays ICG is, is very popular. Um, uh, however, I think very recently uh, we had a discussion, a debate at, at, at an international meeting and also talking about how to introduce ICG into the clinic for vulva cancer and central node. And I think that the safety of only performing the central node biopsy using ICG has not been proven and so uh, is still not, uh, should not be regarded as standard of care. And in fact, in my opinion, you can, of course, combine it with ICG instead of using blue, but foregoing the radioactive tracer and do it only by ICG, in my opinion, should still be uh, used within the protection of a clinical trial. And I think there was at the, the expert panel um, where also um, um, uh, many people from the US in participated. I think we, we agreed on this issue. But I'm, I would like to hear your opinion on that, Brian. What is your thought on that? Yeah, a, a couple of things. So, you know, the protocol as written, you know, we, we did dual technique. We did the, you know, in practice, we do a lymphocytogram um, either the night before or the morning of surgery. Um, you know, I've always, as a side note, I've always found that a GYN oncologist should be doing the injection in nuclear medicine. Um, when we have our nuclear medicine colleagues, you know, they're, they're excellent to work with, but, you know, they're not as comfortable with injecting into the uh, female genitalia as we are. So I always like to go um, have that done. And then intraoperatively, we would use the blue dye, the, the, um, 
most of the time methylene blue. You know, ICG is, you know, everyone gets to robotic surgery and the ICG. Um, I don't like it as much, to be honest with you. I think it leaks a little bit more around the vessel. So the, the study as written, you know, did, didn't allow for that. And Pedro, to answer your question specifically, I don't think that that was a detriment to the results of the trial. Very well. No, absolutely. I fully agree. And perhaps uh, to add on that, we also performed a study on ICG in vulva cancer. And so what we found was it, it, it because of course you want to use it as a single uh, tracer, then you of course need to see where the ICG is uh, through the skin. Uh, because then you really know where to where to go for it. And to be honest, when there is more than two centimeters of fat, it's very hard to see um, uh, the central mode in those patients. So in my point of view, I, I fully agree with what um, Brian is saying. And I, I also think that it does not impact on this trial. Fantastic. Very well. So now, uh, Brian, I want to um, ask you a few additional questions uh, pertaining to the technique and evaluation uh, on the trial. What happened when a sentinel lymph node was not identified in these patients? Yeah, no, thanks for the question. And it, it, it's a, it, this is a clear answer, and sometimes it's not so what the investigators like. But if you don't identify a sentinel node on a unilateral lesion, you have to do a unilateral uh, lymphadenectomy. If you don't identify it on, a, on a, a midline lesion on one side, you have to do it on the full one side. And if it's a midline lesion and you don't identify either, you have to do both. That, that Going into the trial, that was the standard of care. Coming out of the trial, that's the standard of care. Lymph node assessment is crucial for these patients. So if we can't do the minimally um, morbid technique of a central lymph node, a full lymphadenectomy is required. Well, that's great, and thank you for being so concrete on that on that answer. I think that uh, that'll resonate well with our listeners. Um, now, when when considering findings on the sentinel lymph nodes uh, for this study for the groins V two, were isolated tumor cells, and I think Ate mentioned this a little bit earlier, isolated tumor cells criteria for defining a lymph node as being positive, and do you think that that is widely acceptable today? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's strengths of large studies and there's weaknesses of large studies. The strength is the 1,700 patients and coming to an answer quickly. A weakness is lack of central pathology review, right? So, um, so, so to answer, you know, I, I do believe, you know, isolated tumor cells, we would treat them as positive. They're micrometastatic. So what we've learned from these trials is that, you know, if, you, if you're identifying the central lymph node, it doesn't need further lymph node dissection. Um, but you know, not only was it, you know, we included them in the trial, but without a, a true central pathology review, it would be tough to make any final decisions based on that. So I, I do think, you know, when we talk about future directions, it, it may be that that may be one of the future directions that we have to go into, you know, further ve verify and, and make valid what the current pathologic findings are. But for now, we include them. Very well. And I think... Um, uh, so if I, I, maybe I could just, just add a, one little remark on that is that the reason we choose, we did choose them to be included in the positive central node uh, part was that in the study that we published in um, the Lancet Oncology in 2010, we performed indeed a pathology review of the central nodes and then also looked at the other nodes. And what we found was that there was no threshold uh, below which we could define the size of a central node metastasis, uh, um, below which you would not find any addi additional metastasis. So also in the ITC central nodes, we did find uh, additional metastasis in around, I think, 3 to 5% of the patients. So therefore, we decided to include them also in the positive central node group. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you, Ate, for, for adding that. 
Um, now, uh, getting back to Brian, I, I, I think I read from the study that if a patient had unilateral positive lymph nodes, they could receive either unilateral or bilateral radiotherapy. Um, do you think this might impact outcomes? Yeah, um, you know, I, to be honest, in, in a study like this, I don't think it's necessarily going to impact income outcomes, knowing, you know, we're really looking for the, the growing recurrence rate and those that, that were positive. We know negative, it's okay. But, but truthfully, you know, in, in our practice in the U U.S., and I've answered this question before, our practice in the U.S. has traditionally been to, 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 to radiate both sides because of the low morbidity and, again, of the high, um, high morbidity or mortality in those patients that recur. So um, for the most part, we, uh, our practice here is to radiate both. But, you know, again, this is an international study, and our opinions aren't necessarily, um, you know, the same as it is worldwide. So the study allowed for both. And, and as a follow-up to that, then, you know, another area where perhaps uh, we don't have concrete practice, the issue of adding chemotherapy. Uh, you know, certainly when patients received radiotherapy, uh, were the patients getting concurrent chemotherapy as an absolute requirement in the groins V2? That they were not. It wasn't a requirement. It was optional. Um, and, and as was discussed later on, moving forward, we do think that would have a benefit in some of these patients when we're talking about the next round of studies. And again, a, a lot of our use of chemosensitization of these patients um, is based on our, our treatment in cervical cancer, which, you know, it, it, it makes sense. It's, it's probably will have better efficacy. But for, for this trial in particular, it wasn't required. Very well. So now turning back to Ate, I want to ask before we get into the results, and obviously we want to know uh, the highlights of those results, but I want to ask you two important questions. Um, you had stopping rules and uh, sequential testing put in place. Uh, tell us about those. Yeah, because that is one of the, I think, the major strengths of, of the study, and in fact also the reason why it allows you to perform this type of surgical studies. Um, and you, uh, so what, in fact, what you do is, um, before performing the studies, um, you estimate what would be your, um, uh, what is the, uh, for example, the growing recurrence rate with your standard of care. And then um, the next thing you do is what kind of increase in growing recurrence rate would you think would be acceptable in light of the possible benefits of not performing a uh, full lymphadenectomy, and based on that, um, we came up with um, with the stopping rules as they were uh, formulated for this study. And then, of course, you need different stopping rules for different uh, groups. For example, in the in the group with the negative central node, your growing recurrence rate, your baseline with standard of care is somewhere around three to four percent. And for patients with a metastatic central node who have a full lymphadenectomy, being the standard of care is estimated around 8%, and then you can uh, uh, calculate how many growing occurrences uh, you would expect. And what you do then during the study is after 25, after 50, after 75 patients, you look at what is your continuous effect, you look at what is the, how many events did you have, how many growing recurrences do you have, and if it's below, the, the, the maximum allowed number, then you can go on with the study. If it goes uh, above that threshold, then you need to stop the study and perform an interim analysis. Yeah, and, and that's very important to highlight. Uh, having these preset rules certainly um, adds to the validity of, uh, of the trial itself. 
Um, my next question, again, before going into the results, is that I understand it was back in around 2010. You had to have a, a protocol amendment in the study. Um, just share with us, why was that required, and could this be a potential point of criticism of the study? Um, okay, what, what happened? In, um, in June 2010, in fact, it shows you uh, the strength of having these uh, stocking rules on board. So we were continuously monitoring the growing recurrence rate. And at that time, we had 91 patients with a metastatic sentinel node included in the study. And um, at the, in, that, in June 2010, we also had a, um, a, growing, a growing recurrences in uh, 10 patients. And that the 10 patients, we went above the stopping rule. So we had to put the study on hold. And then we performed a uh, interim analysis, and what we show, uh, what we saw was that indeed nine of these ten patients had a central node metastasis larger than two millimeters. So, um, therefore, we were able to decide to move on with the study, but then limit ourselves to patients with a central node metastasis smaller than two millimeters, and um, um, and we. Um, so we, we, we moved on with the study in those patients and for the patients with the central nervousness larger than two millimeters, uh, an ignofemoral lymphadenectomy was performed being the standard of care. And a side effect of, of, that, of this happening was, of course, that in the end, now, we are indeed are able to compare the, the data for the patients prospectively collected for patients with the metastasis larger than two millimeters who had radiotherapy, and with the next group of patients that had a large, larger metastasis than two millimeter who had an ignofemoral lymphadenectomy. So that is, in fact, a side effect. So, in fact, to be honest, uh, we, of course, we did not want this to happen, but uh, I think it adds to the strength of the study instead of um, decreasing it. Yeah, an added benefit, you might say. So then now... Yeah. Um, Unwanted, yeah? Unwanted. <laughs> That's right. Uh, let's get on to the results. What did groins V2 show us? So what it, it shows us that in patients, I think the biggest finding is that in patients with a, um, a metastatic central node that is smaller than two millimeters, it's safe not to perform an inhofemoral lymphadenectomy, but to give them radiotherapy to the groin. And um, safe with respect to the groin recurrence rate will be very low. And the be added benefit is that it also leads to less treatment-related morbidity, such as lymphedema, et cetera, et cetera. And, and remarkably, again, highlighting that this was over 1,500 patients that were eligible. So that's actually... Uh, quite remarkable and robust to to draw those conclusions, and and of course, obviously, I'll tell you one one of the additional questions, and we're going to get into uh, specifics uh, a little bit more. But one of the other additional questions is oncologic outcomes. Uh, what what did the groins V two show us about disease free survival and overall survival? Yeah. Um, and in that respect, uh, as you mentioned, the number of patients that were uh, included. Um, so in the end, we, we, we do have data for uh, 1,213 patients with a negative central node, 
and then uh, 322 with a metastatic central node of which 160 had a, a micrometastasis, so smaller than two millimeters, and 162 um, larger than two uh, millimeters. And if you look at the um, groin recurrence rate in the patients with um, um, uh, with a sentinel node um, uh, metastasis, um, you can see that in those patients with smaller than two millimeters, the groin recurrence rate is um, l lower than three um, uh, percent. Um, and in uh, after radiotherapy, and in patients with a um, 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 larger metastatic node, there the groin recurrence rate after radiotherapy is um, is is higher um, and is around. I have to look. Yeah, true. Somewhere 20, 20, around 22 percent without lymph node dissection and seven percent with lymph node dissection in the greater yeah, than two million. Exactly. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> And then also with regards to the uh, to the survival and the uh, disease-free survival, if you could just add a little bit of information as it pertains to to those findings, um, and then I'm going to get into a little bit more of the granular uh, details as well. So the disease-specific uh, death uh, that we analyzed after two years, eh, you have to keep that in mind. These disease-specific deaths for patients. Uh, with a, a macro um, a larger than two millimeter central node was 25%. So uh, disease-specific survival is also around 75%. And by the way, a very interesting finding was that the disease-specific survival or the overall survival for patients with a metastasis larger than two millimeters was uh, around 75% both for the, uh, the radiotherapy group as well as for the lymphadenectomy group, which is still something that we are thinking about how that should be explained. For patients who had a negative sentinel node, the um, disease-specific death is around uh, 3%, so disease-specific uh, survival is around 97% uh, or 96%, and for patients with a negative sentinel node, it's 97%, so really, really very high. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Now, yeah, and the most prognostic, so the most prognostic, um, uh, uh, prognostic factor for with respect to uh, disease-specific and overall survival is the presence of a microscopic, um, uh, a, a macrometastasis in the groins. Yeah, micrometastasis. Um, now, we, we have some questions from our from our fellows in the International Journal. And um, Brian, this this first one will go to you. Uh, this is from Cecilia Darin from uh, from Argentina, uh, and she asks: Usually, adjuvant radiotherapy is indicated with at least two positive lymph nodes. Do you think that patients in the micrometastases group with only one sentinel lymph node positive may be overtreated? Yeah. No. That. that um that's a great question. First of all, you know, Pedro, I want to acknowledge you do a great job with mentoring junior investigators and junior um, pub, you know, editors. So thank you for including them in the questioning. <laughs> um, that, that's a great question. Um, and as it sort of I alluded to earlier, you know, it's, it, it varies. Um, but specifically, do I think it's overtreatment? Um, yes, I, I think it's probably we're, we're overtreating a lot of people. You know, in all of oncology, you know, we're we're overtreating those that we that won't recover, but we don't we can't really identify those. 
But knowing that it's over treatment, then we'll look at the side effects and the consequences of treatment. And, you know, our radiation oncologists are, are really good and they're getting better at limiting the doses necessary, um, do, you know, radiating in the right fields, um, you know, get, getting rid of sort of the, the peripheral damage from radiotherapy. So while there are some side effects to radiotherapy and not all of um, not only the side effects, but, you know, there's some financial toxicity associated with radiotherapy. Um, I'm relatively aggressive in treating these patients um, in order to help uh, prevent disease recurrence. One interesting point to, to Optus' comment about the two-year survival being the same, what the study did find is those patients that received radiotherapy had a higher rate of distant metastases than those who didn't get radiotherapy, uh, which, again, is an interesting finding. But um, it's over-treatment, but I think it's for the best interest of the patient. Yeah, and actually, to, to your comment, uh, my next question is to Ate, and this was actually not from just a single fellow, but most most of the fellows were asking, um, did you have any information regarding outcomes of radiotherapy alone versus chemo radiation? Um, yes, we do have some information. Um, I think that, um, in fact, only 21 of... 177 patients, so um, 11, uh, almost 12% that had uh, primary inclinopheral radiotherapy through the group, um, you know, only 21 of them indeed uh, received concurrent chemotherapy, and 14 out of them were in the group with the micrometastasis, and 7 were in the group with uh, the macrometastasis. So the numbers are really very low, of course. But we, uh, you can find this in the uh, supplemental data in the in Supplement Six, in fact. And um, the, the interesting observation is that there were no groin recurrences in the 21 patients that indeed uh, received chemo radiation versus 13 out of 156 after uh, radiotherapy only, and that is 0% versus 9.2%, which is um, um, which is interesting but not significantly uh, uh, different because of the low numbers, of course, of the patients that received um, uh, chemo radiation. But on the other hand, in my, in my uh, point of view, I think this is encouraging with respect to uh, groin V3 because there is a, an indication that indeed chemo radiation is more effective than radiation alone also in this group of uh, patients. Right, and then we'll talk about that study in a, in a few minutes. Um, Ate, another question. Um, obviously, uh, everyone is uh, interested in adverse events. What did you find in this study, and particularly if you could address uh, issues related to lymphedema? Okay, um, excellent question, because this is a very important topic, of course, because, in fact, we are... Uh, we try to not perform a lymphadenectomy because of the fact that we think that you indeed will decrease the treatment-associated morbidity. So we did indeed um, uh, try to uh, follow up that as, as good as possible. And um, so if you look at uh, the uh, morbidity that was observed, and you will also find this, of course, in more details in the, um, in the manuscript, but there were significant differences with respect to the um, frequency of uh, lymphedema and also the frequency of uh, recurrent erythroblasts in for the three groups. So the lowest uh, was the percentage of, for example, uh, lymphedema after 12 months in the central node only group. That is around four to five percent in the group of patients that had central node plus radiotherapy. It is um, around 10 uh, percent, and in the patients 
that had a central node plus lymphadenectomy plus or without um, radiotherapy, there it is around 25%. And that was also found after six months. And there was also a significant difference in the occurrence of recurrent erysipelas, indeed showing that the uh, it's not only effect, effective with respect to survival, but it's also in the end resulting in less treatment-associated morbidity. Yeah, so this is really important information uh, with regards to discussions with our patients. Now, Ate, uh, this next yeah. question comes to us from Sarah Nasser. She's in Germany. Uh, did you collect any uh, information on quality of life? And if you did, can you share those results with us? Um, maybe Brian should answer that question. Brian. <laughs> that's what that's um, And I sort of, you know, that's one of the limitations, a couple of limitations of this trial. One is that we didn't prospectively define the radiation fields, but in those patients that did have radiation, we looked back to confirm it was conformed radiation. Secondly is we didn't include a quality of life component. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're making some assumptions that if you have less side effects, you know, from without the, with less lymphedema and things like that, that you, you it would probably improve the quality of life. But, you know, um, that, that is one of the limitations of the trial that we need to continue to look at closely. Yeah. And uh, as a follow-up to that, another question on regards to the limitation from Eric Estrada in Guatemala. Um, he asked, uh, how did the lack of pretreatment, quality control, and prospective quality assurance for the radiation group impacted the results? Yeah, that, I think that, that really is a great question because this is, a, this is always the big discussion or big debate when you talk about uh, efficacy of radiotherapy in um, gynecologic oncology and especially in vulva cancer. Of course, we had the, the, the Stamen trial um, where um, radiotherapy was also performed instead of lymphadenectomy in a selected group of patients. And um, after uh, the outcome of this trial did show a higher uh, rate of growing recurrences, but it also, when it was analyzed, showed that the quality of the radiotherapy was very poor. So, in fact, the study did not really tell you something about the uh, efficacy of uh, high-quality radiotherapy in this specific group of patients. So, um, we, we were not able to include um, uh, prospectively um, a radiotherapy quality control in our trial. And and you have to keep in mind this trial um, was designed, I think, somewhere in 2004. So it's a long time ago, mm-hmm. which, is, which is a disadvantage, of course, of the trial. The good thing is that nowadays, most radiotherapy patients uh, do have CT-guided um, uh, uh, radiotherapy planning, um, and there, there is also a table in the, in the uh, supplemental data where you can see what kind of uh, radiotherapy was used. But we were very well able also in retrospect in those patients that indeed suffered from a growing recurrence, we were able to analyze whether or not the, the field included uh, the place where the growing recurrence occurred. And we did show in this analysis that that was the case in all the patients that had a growing recurrence after radiotherapy. So we are very sure that those patients indeed had uh, high-quality radiotherapy. So in that respect, I think that despite the fact that we did not have this prospective quality control, Mm -hmm. we were able, in hindsight, to, to really be sure that indeed the patient has high-quality radiotherapy. That's fantastic, and thank you for adding that information. Um, now, Brian, another uh, question from Sarah Nasser in, in Germany. She says, uh, in women who wish to 
preserve their fertility, ovarian function. Uh, would you still recommend radiotherapy following ovarian transposition, or would you lean towards inguinofemoral lymphadenectomy in those patients? Yeah, Sarah gets the award for best questions. This is really another another good thought-provoking question. Um, you know, th th that question wasn't addressed in the study. Truthfully, in my practice, you know, God forbid a, a young woman gets vulvar cancer and we have to deal with this, you know, towards her, her question, I would I would lean towards a full lymphadenectomy in order to help prevent radiotherapy for a, a young, a younger fertility um, conserving procedure. But, you know, it's, it's it, as with anything else, long conversation with the patient, going through all the risk benefits, alternatives to treatment and coming up with a best treatment plan for that patient. But yeah, I would try not to radiate those younger patients if possible. Great. So I just have two more questions. Uh, one is, what is the take-home message from Groins V2? Uh, yeah, great. I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it quickly. Number one, we demonstrated that 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 two pretty good groups can work great together. You know, there were there were two independent studies in the first generation, the Groins V1 and GOG 173, that accrued a thousand patients in, in less time working together. We recruit seventeen hundred patients. Um, and from our perspective, you know, we don't need the GOG doesn't need to be the world leader in all trials. We worked great with a great leading group, and we're really um, honored, humbled, and, and proud to work with them. So I think, number one, 1,700 patients prospective trial, phenomenal. Number two, confirmed sentinel lymph node negative patients don't need further surgery, don't need further treatment. Number three, the primary objective in two millimeters or less lymph node metastases, we don't need to do morbid surgery. We could do radiotherapy, and um, that the outcomes in those for those patients um, is just as good as if we did a more radical procedure. And finally, we learned that we need to still figure out the best plan of action for those patients with macrometastatic disease or extracapsular spread in order to help limit the morbidity while maintaining the same efficacy of treatment. Fantastic. Uh, greatly uh, summarized. Uh, last question. Now we go on to Groins V3. What is that study? What is the primary objective? Um, yeah, no, I first... I, 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 Groins V3 is a trial that the lead investigator similar to this study is Dr. Maik Oink. She's been a great partner with us, and we're, we love working with her. And I know she's um, she's from Atsa's group, so uh, we're, we're excited to work with her again. Groins V3 is going to be a prospective activity trial, specifically in those patients with uh, macrometastatic disease, to do some of the things we talked about. One, giving chemosensitization in all patients to see if that helps make a difference. And secondly, we're increasing the, 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 the dosing of the radiotherapy, going from 50 gray to between 56 and 60 gray. And our feeling is, and this is a partnership we have with our radiation oncologists and our, and our colleagues worldwide, our feeling is that this may be enough to help limit the groin recurrences, again, without um, the morbidity of a larger procedure. Um, and one thing I want to note, and we sort of mentioned this earlier, you know, we get a lot what we're doing based on what we do in cervix cancer. We haven't even had touched the surface yet, surface yet of immunotherapy in these patients. Mm. We may learn, you know, groins V4, groins V5, that giving a patient a checkpoint inhibitor may, may also help to improve the outcome for this patient. So it's really exciting what we're starting here and then the story that we're telling. Well, thank you so much to uh, both of you, Ate van der Zee, uh, also I should mention, first author in the manuscript, Mikey Ong. And uh, Brian Slomowitz, uh, as well as all of the contributors to the Groins V2, 
um, you have really impacted the field of gynecologic oncology, and uh, I thank you for your contributions, and, and we look forward to many more contributions from uh, your groups, and um, again, congratulations on this great publication. Andrew. Andrew, thank you very much for that. Maybe I would like to add one thing, perhaps, because I guess that a lot of young um, people in training as a, as a, as a gynecologist or a gynecologic oncologist might, might um, listen to this podcast. And I have, I have one message for them because um, when I did my um, training as a, a gynecologic oncology, I was, that it, and we're talking now about the early 1990s, um, my motivation to perform the work that we did was um, observing patients in our floor in those days who had a very small vulva cancer and who were treated by radical uh, excision radical vulvectomy with en bloc ethnophenol lymphadenectomy. And I very, very well remember that we were telling these patients the result of their pathology and we tell, told them that really the, the, the results were great because there were no um, there were no lymph node metastases, but they were still four to six weeks on our floor because the healing was so poor. Mm -hmm. And that really, this clinical observation really motivated me to, to explore better ways to treat this type of patients. And so, in fact, we worked, I worked for more than 25 years in the end of, of uh, establishing the work that we did in Groins V1 and in Groins V2. And I really encouraged, encouraged the young people, the the young gynecologists to have this type of observations in their daily practice, which really helps you to, to perform a lot of work, which by the way has been great fun because it's really very, very rewarding to establish this type of global networks and working together with people like Brian, like uh, Charles Levenbach uh, from all over the world in fact. And then uh, having a, a publication like this, it almost feels like uh, a kind of fulfillment of <laughs> of a life work, as you as you might say. This is just a little bit of a sentimental message from a an, well, let's say a, an old gynecological oncologist. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Ate. That was really very inspirational, and uh, we'll make sure to highlight that to to our our young uh, audience. Thank you. Thank you very much for this uh, interview. Pedro, thank you so much. And, and Atta, thanks for being a great friend and a great mentor to me as well. So thank you. Okay.